Best part of summer on Nantucket. Whatever. Ooh. Fundraisers? <laughs> Is that, yeah, that's good. That's a good, I haven't heard that before. Because there's so many fundraisers. There are so many, and we're at. My favorite thing is my vegetable garden, picking veggies, and going swimming at the beach, and going on dog walks. Part of summer is. It's awesome for me. Everybody else is like, I can't wait for swimming. September. The best part of summer is swimming. And we planned this. We already knew about it. He, her fiance, had checked with my husband and I. So we planned a whole barbecue on the beach. He was, took her to the summer house and proposed. And then we sent him a text saying, "Hey, I, we're with your whole family. Come on down to the beach." On, on Somerset? I mean, on Wisconsin Beach. No, no, that was their thing. They were out there. Yeah, but I'm saying, oh, where, 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 where did you guys set up the? We set up an eel point. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay, that's and that's beautiful. her, knowing that's her most favorite thing to do on Nantucket, because we were married here 32 years ago. Oh, oh wow. So I've, been, awesome. I've been coming with my kids, yeah. I so love that. that's her most favorite thing, and he knew that. And he said, I'd love to do it. So we set up the whole barbecue while he was busy proposing. Is this the doctor? <clears throat> no. Okay. He already married my older daughter. And Linus. Well, they're marrying well. <laughs> yeah. They're doing, they're doing okay. So, and so Linus, summer we, barbecues, what would yours be? Summer. I like getting up really early. Like at 5.30 or 6 and going for a swim when nobody else is out. In the ocean? Yeah. By yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you need a buddy. I used to lifeguard, so you, you, you don't want to go by yourself. Crazy, if it's crazy, I don't go. But, no, where, what but I'll go to Gaza Strip. There's my cliffside. Oh, okay. Or I'll go to There you have it. Swimming, the common theme of some folks' favorite part of summer on Nantucket. And I did it too. I took my dip this morning walking the dogs out by the Radio Tower Beach. I jumped in the ocean. It's funny listening to those different people talk about the different spots. And one woman, uh, everyone has a different name for these different parts of the beaches. Gaza Strip, I'd never heard that before. Everyone's, uh, ladies, Which where's Ladies Beach? Where is Split Rail? Um... Uh, 14th pole, is that one? I don't know. Everyone's got these different names, and uh, it's hard to keep them all straight. But uh, nonetheless, everyone's a good ocean swim. Who doesn't like a good swim in the ocean? And this is the time to do it because it weather has been amazing. Today is August 11th, 2015, and today is very special because it finally came. It's here. It's been 28 days without rain and it is raining now, folks. It is raining, and it's awesome. And lawns and plants and flowers are loving it, and it looks great. It's nice to see some rain. It's nice to have some cool weather because we're in it. This is, this is the push. This is the August push. A few more weeks, and things will slow right down. The island will breathe a nice big breath. I'm looking forward to it, as are a lot of people, but it's been a great summer. I went to a couple cool events. Uh, I'm becoming a Nantucket socialite. I love it. Kind of. Not really. Uh, I just went to the the first event that I went to was the Nantucket Safe, Har uh, Safe Harbor Animal Rescue Dog Fashion Show. I got to walk a Newfoundland down the runway, which was pretty pretty hilarious. And then this Sunday, I went to the Almanac Artist Colony fundraiser, the bocce tournament which was really affordable. I want to make that very clear. Some of these fundraisers that uh, happen out here, there's just, uh, they're too expensive and they're not accessible to people like myself and other, you know, 50, 100 bucks. I'm happy to contribute, but some of these fundraisers that happen out here, 
you know, $1,200 a ticket, even $500 a ticket. I know it's for a good cause, but you eliminate half the people that could potentially be needing to support it by putting those prices out there. But whatever, that's just something that I'm noticing living out here that some of these fundraisers, it's like there, there was one in particular that I would love to have gone to. And that was during the uh, Nantucket comedy festival with the, the Farley brothers or the Coen brothers. I forget. I should know. Cause I'm talking about, but either way, the price was a thousand dollars a ticket. No, thank you. But I would have like loved to have gone and spoken with the, uh, the Farley brothers. Or is it the Coen brothers? I can't keep the brothers straight. I'm sorry, folks. Listen, I'm doing this off the cuff while my daughter is sleeping, trying to get this out because this episode today is episode number 15 of Inside the Whale, Nantucket's first podcast. I'm your host, Doug Cody. My guest today is a Nantucket icon, a legend. I'm going to say it. He is a legend. None other than Gene Mann. He's the man about town. He is a wash ashore since 1968, I think. And Gene took the time out of his busy day to sit down and talk with me, and I got to pick his brain about uh, going to these little cocktail parties and ask him questions like, uh, does he ever get sick of it? What's it like going to all these cocktail parties? How do you not become a drunk? Gene is a wealth of knowledge, and there's one thing that Gene was passionate about that I learned through my conversation is he loves Nantucket. He does. He's a true, true lover of the island. As I am slowly becoming too, as I live and learn and meet people out here, I keep meeting more and more interesting people. And Gene was on my radar when I first got here and started the podcast. And I got him, got him to sit down and talk about his life, his life before the island, his life on the island, what a great guy, and I can't say enough, uh, and a big thanks to him for sitting down. He's a little window into the past of Nantucket, the present and the future. That being said, let's get to it, folks. Let's hear my conversation with Man About Town, Gene Man. Here we go, folks. It's time to go Inside the Whale. Guys, now you might Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. <laughs> He rises! 30 miles out of going deep. Inside the world! A whale as big as an island. A whale, a whale, a whale as big as an island. Tell simply, this is the beauty of the podcast. This is the podcast. I don't. I just don't have time. That's what everyone says. I, don't I want to. And one thing I thought of doing, this is weird to have the feedback, but um, after we get this, and this fall I'm redoing a new website. I don't really want to talk about that one right now, but um, it's going to archive quite a lot. One of the things it could do is archive all existing podcasts about Nantucket that would be searchable. So obviously yours would be there. But there are others that have been done over the years. I don't know if they're still accessible because I don't know what iTunes is doing. Oh, interesting. So some people have already done sort of radio-type shows. Yeah, but, you know, it might be things like um, it could be as simple as the radio station is doing an interview with somebody and they never used to 
to make that a podcast. Now they do. Mm-hmm. But then they all d- only hold on to it for a couple of weeks, which is stupid. So the radio station is doing something like that. They're taking some of their interviews, uh, particularly on the nonprofit station. Mm-hmm. And they're, archi- they're well, they're not archiving it. They're making a podcast, but I think it only lasts a couple of weeks. Well, that doesn't make any sense. The one thing that I was, uh, as I've been doing this, is it actually becomes an oral history. Exactly. Which is really cool, which right. is interesting and uh well that actually just brings us to you because you to me were someone that have been around you've seen (laughs) nantucket i was there were so many different things that i wanted to bring into the conversation sitting down because you've seen the island go through so many changes so i had this one phrase that i came up with the more things change more they stay the same if you would agree or disagree with that with qualification Right. But before we get into that, I think we should get back to Gene Mann's arrival on Nantucket. <laughs> okay. And uh, p- prior to that, to where you grew up and how you got your start. Right. Um, childhood, I tried, to, I tried to erase my childhood. I was very unhappy. But of course, if you're only unhappy, you don't know that you were unhappy until you figure out or it comes to you that you are happy somewhere. So all I remember is I grew up in New York City, but only for my first five, six years, then moved to Brooklyn, then out to Long Island, and that's kind of where my life started. And I just didn't like it there. I didn't like school. I felt smarter than all the teachers. And my only escape was going to Jones Beach, but it cost 75 cents to go there, and that was a lot of money for for a (laughs) kid who just got his driver's license. So, um, But once I went away to college for my first year, I went, oh, this is what life can be like. This is completely different than the way I've grown up. And the main reason I think, when I try to put my finger on it is, I kind of now think of life as an adventure. But what I mean by that is, for example, with um, one day I decided this island needed a TV station. It had one, it had what Gino was doing, but Gino was very Gino-centric. That almost, he was involved in everything. He was, you always heard his voice. I was looking at how you look at the island and never actually are in the picture of the island. So I ended up just making that happen. It took a year to raise the money to do it, but I'm not sure where else someone like me could say, I think I'll start a a TV station and have it within a year. And it actually goes way back to my first year here. I came here as to be a house painter for a summer. I was living in Boulder, Colorado. I'd gotten a job for an underground newspaper called Boulder Express and wanted to go back to that. This was Boulder pretty alternative in the day? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Boulder always was. Yeah. I, I've spent time in Boulder, but it has sort of that definitely a very hippie vibe. Yeah. Although then the uh, population was only 100,000. I think it's probably 500,000. Right. They were actually trying to cap it at 100,000 when I was there. That didn't work. <laughs> Um, but so you're working for a newspaper? I'm working for an underground newspaper. There's only two nas- newspapers there, the uh, Boulder, can't remember, and then the uh, Boulder Camera, it was called. Tried to get a job there, couldn't. And then there was an underground newspaper. So I walked in, I was hired on the spot, offered $50 a week to write and photograph for them. So I did that over the winter, and I wanted to keep that going, but I'd heard you could make so much money painting houses on Nantucket. Did you know someone on Nantucket at the time? I had visited, well, this goes back further, but yes, I was visiting a couple of friends. Uh, One of them was Chick Walsh, who ended up many years later owning the Opera House, not owning, but actually running the Opera House, and then owning 21 Federal. 
And this goes back to 1967 when I went to protest the Vietnam, Vietnam War in Washington, D.C. with a couple of my friends. And one of my friends had a friend who had a house in Georgetown. And we ended up staying at that house. And we were the, I was the manager of th my friend's band. It was called Fat City Five. So I was the manager. And we were the only people in our college who smoked pot. <laughs> and, <laughs> and at Georgetown, this group that we stayed And what with, college was that? Villanova? You Villanova, yeah. And then at Georgetown, these guys were the motorcycle crowd. They all were beautiful. They all had big hogs. And they gotcha. would drive around every Sunday. And they... Um, and they were the only ones in their school that smoked that pot. Smoked pot. <laughs> so we were sitting there one day, and uh, somebody was, hey, you smoke pot? Yeah, I smoke pot. You smoke pot? And from then on, <laughs> we became great friends. It's amazing. And that still holds true today. Right. And I don't know if you know <laughs> Terry Palmette. He's a photographer here on the island. I don't. He was part of their, uh, their household down there. So my two good friends, when I first came here in, 19, in uh, 1969 to visit, were uh, Chick and Terry. And... I came here, I just went, this is the place I've always been looking for. I knew it l almost, I, I, I would like to say the second I got off the boat, but it took about two blocks down before I actually said, this is it. And was it the steamship boat that you came over on back then? What was it, what were the two, what was the transportation like when you got here? So, uh, steamship was a little over three hour ride, slower boat. Although they did have staterooms, and you could do things in staterooms that you wouldn't think you could do in staterooms. Really? They had actual little, like, quarters like you'd see in a train? Exactly. And um, Let's bring those had, back. They had maybe two or three, and the surcharge was, I think the tickets for the boat were, like, five bucks, and you could rent one of those things for, like, 20 bucks for the trip over. Wow. And uh, I still remember how often we would um, partake of things on the way over you could kind of bring some beer in there if you wanted to that's nobody, amazing nobody, was, nobody wanted to know what you were doing things were a little more laid back definitely and then there were airplanes but nobody took airplanes there was maybe five flights a day and i never you know i'm sure the wealthy people who lived here did but it was always the boat you never s talked about anybody flying in in those days yeah well i want to go back to you said you went to a vietnam protest in uh Washington, in Washington, D.C., and I immediately think of Forrest Gump in the movie that scene where Forrest finds Jenny. Were you on the monument? Was it that kind of setting? Um, yes and no. What happened was when I, sh I just by – oh, no, we had gone down for the um, f to protest, but I didn't think I knew anybody, and we, had, we just got to know these guys from Georgetown. And it turned out the brother, Chick's brother, had rented out a big um, high school kitchen, I think, and had decided he was going to cook uh, rice and vegetables all day long and deliver them. Sorry, deliver them to the mall. And then he looked at my Volkswagen bus and he said, "You've got a Volkswagen bus. Do you want it? Can you do this?" Oh man, and is there a picture of you in the Volkswagen bus somewhere? The, uh, somewhere. Oh, we got to yeah. put that in the archive. <laughs> okay, that, sound, that sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> and, and so I said, "Sure." So we didn't get as close to the action as we wanted to be. We were out on the edges parking, but we were bringing these vats of vegetable and rice. And so I was there. And, um, you know, if I hadn't done that, I think my life would have been totally different. I don't know where I would have ended up, but that led me to Nantucket. And when you, so you were just, so when you get to Nantucket in 1970? 69, I'm visiting, and I just go, yeah, this place is heaven on earth. Then when I go to Colorado, I've got a job, and I think, gee, job, well, what I'll do is I, I asked them at uh, the Boulder Express, could I go to Nantucket for the summer and then come back? And they said, absolutely. 
and they, they guaranteed me a job when, when I got back. So I came here, I knew you could paint houses. Most of the house painters were actually from Charleston, South Carolina. I'm not quite sure why, but it turned out that way. And I got to know some of them, got job painting houses, but probably after about two months, um, so I guess in early June sometime, I had met a woman named Janet Russo who had started a clothing store, and she realized she had a little bit too much space. And there happened to be a set of poles that kind of divided the space into one-third, two-third. So she said to me, how would you like to sublet this one-third here and make a photo gallery out of it? And I went, wow, that's pretty cool. So I started paying her rent, and now I own a business on Nantucket. <laughs> it's pretty fast. That's like two months in. Then about a month later, I was because I was a photographer, I used to go into the camera shop all the time, and the guy who ran it really wasn't happy doing it. And one day he literally threw the keys at me as I walked in. He said, I can't stand this place. I got to get the hell out of this place. You run it for a while and see what you think. And so he I, gave it to you? He, he threw me the keys. And, you know, I keep waiting that by the end of the day he's going to show up and go, oh, well, I thought about it and I really want it. Two days, three days, five days. A week passes. And I go, his name was Charlie Folger. I go, Charlie, are you coming back? He said, no, I told you I'm not coming back. Uh, you know, if you like it, buy it from me in September. I went. Okay, in September I offered him seven thousand dollars, and he and took you, it. And you bought the shot. Now, where was it located? Right smack in the middle of town. It's you know where um, uh, Meadow and Main is. Yeah. It's the if you face the front door of Meadow and Main, it was the very first shop over right there on Main Street. Although it was an old funky building at that time. Wow. So you bought the camp, and would you develop film and did the whole works? Yeah, worked the all dark room. Worked all day. Did the dark room all night long. Oh my! Yes, absolutely, God. and then put a gallery in there. So I moved that in. We called it the Quintessence Gallery and gave shows of any photo island photographers. And it was the kind of place where hippies just hung out. We had a big basket of um, mail so people could travel the world and still come pick up their mail here. Yeah, I wanted. There's that picture in Stubby's of the. I think it's from 1975, or it was a bar closing. But that picture to me is so fascinating yeah. because it's an era of Nantucket and. I guess I want to get a sense of what Nantucket was like when you got here. Who were the people here? Who was vacationing? What was the overall vibe of the place when you got here? Well, you're right to say that that picture you're talking about is the Bosun's Locker. And it actually took place in 1970. It was the last year of the Bosun's Locker. And it was a two-floor restaurant. Not too many people actually made it to the second floor. But it was a bar that had every ilk of people on the island, from plumbers to 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 politicians, to rich people, not rich people, children, animals. Actually, very much the way Cisco Brewers is today. If you, if, you <laughs> wanna, if you want the feel of what it was like here in the 70s, just go to Cisco in the afternoon and take a look around. And that was the, the demographic of, of what was going on back then. A lot more hippies. Um, but the bar was someplace, the bar became, Bresnan's Locker Bar became the biggest place to go because most of the people were in the trades. So there were house painters, there were people who became plumbers and electricians or as assistants then. And that's really the industry that existed here was building trades. So on a rainy day, nobody could work. Well, that hasn't changed too much. Not too much. <laughs> and piled into the Bosun's Locker and, and basically sat there all day and that was kind of the center. And if if you had to get a message to somebody. You just left it at the, at the bosuns, and you, somebody would get the message. Yeah, it seemed to me, too, there was a lot of uh, Wes um, from the Bean. Uh, he um, told me when he first got here 
there was just a lot. It was a lot of artists, painters, and photographers, and a lot of people that were, like you said, hippie, sort of alternative. So was Nantucket really an alternative lifestyle destination for people back then, do you think? Yes, definitely. Um, and what I found, found interesting back then was the perception of the island because here was an island who was already colorblind, so there was never any black-white problems. Everybody was considered equal. It was They had already accepted gays. Um, same thing, you know, you go into any restaurant, there's just not just no uh, exclusion of anybody right. except hippies. So this island was a couple several years behind the time, and it used to really irk me when we, when I was doing the house painting. I still remember uh, we we painted this big house out on Brand Point. It was actually the bowling house. I remember that, and a lot of us had to be up on the roof covering uh, painting up there. And a tour bus would go by about once an hour. And uh, I still remember one day, the tour driver goes, oh, and these are some of the few hippies we have here on Nantucket. <laughs> like it was part of the show. So the next time they came by, I went, right. okay, from now on, every time they say that, we're all going to turn around, wave on cue, and then wave go back cue. to painting. Oh, look, there's some hippies. Um, I remember that every time I tried to char uh, cash a check for more than $1,000, the... Um, the people at the counter had been told not to give it to me because I was gonna, I was gonna spend it on drugs. I would actually demand to see the bank president, and the bank president would come out, and his name was Hank the Bank, his nickname. <laughs> Hank would say, "I know you're going. That's what you're gonna do with this money. You're gonna go buy that weed." I said, "I'm going to New York to buy books," and he goes, "You can have them sent to you." And we'd argue, and then he'd go, "Okay, here's the money." Wow, so kind of hot. That was the thing uh, uh, against hippies. And then I remember I got the shop. Now, when I say hippies, I at that time had a beard. I had long hair, still had hair on top. Um, I never wore shoes. I barely wore them in the winter. It just, I just really didn't like shoes. And um, be, when I'd walk down the street... Were you living be, at the studio, too, at the time? No, actually, uh, I had a house out in Pacoma, on the water, a beautiful house. I don't know if you saw that picture of the... Me on, on the roof of a house? No. Okay. That was in a recent article of Mad About Town, and, but originally written by N Magazine, Rob Cucuzza wrote it. And I lost my train of thought there. Where was oh, I? Oh, you were just saying about uh, where you'd lived out in Pocomo, your house. I, I had asked, I was just curious if you were living uh, at during that time where right. you were living. You oh, said you're oh, living out in Pocomo. So I hardly had shoes on, and um, when I would walk around the town before I got the camera shop, it was as if, this is in my mind, the image of a little old lady walking toward me who would change her direction and cross the street. So <laughs> like now, I'm exaggerating, thug. I'm exaggerating, but there were people that crossed the street rather than walk past us because we were hippies. The local kids, which was mixed with uh, all, all nationalities of people, the actual islanders, they hated us even. And I'm talking about the people our age because we had a softball league and we had a volleyball league and they just thought they're a bunch of hippies, so let, you know, let them have a team. They're never going to win because they're going to be stoned all the time, and we won all the time. And then they started cheating and smashing us under the what? Uh, under the uh, <laughs> under the boards and whatever it took to win because they couldn't stand the fact that we <laughs> were a better team. So all of the, it was like that. And then I got the camera shop, and I became the owner of the camera shop. 
So now you're a business owner in Nantucket. I didn't change the way I looked. I still wore the same clothes. I still didn't wear shoes. And people would come in and treat me like an adult. And it would be like, this is just, I mean, it was like night and day. And I still remember this one time that a little old woman came in, probably one of the ones that feared me, and started talking to me because I was behind the counter and actually had a great conversation, first time ever. And then she, I, then I said, I've got to, I'm going to test something here. I'm going to come out from behind the counter, make sure she, because my hair was in a ponytail, take my hair out of the ponytail, and then uh, make her see that I have no shoes on. And I walked out. She never broke stride, completely friendly, gave me a great hello. Didn't matter. I owned a business. And I think what happened is as hippies took over businesses, and there were many back in those days, right. that we earned our way into Nantucket society. It only took a couple of years. So it was by, I would say, 1974, we were fully assimilated into the population. So in, in the 70s, the people that are vacationing out here, is it, is it, was it like it, it is today? Is, was it wealthy people and people that CEOs, or was it a much more integrated with middle class people that could still afford a vacation? Or was it always sort of an elite? Um, CEOs, no. I, I, that, nobody ever thought of CEOs here. And if they were, they never looked like it or act like it. And I'm not saying that they do today, but I'm talking about the common perception of it. What there was here was old wealth. So what you had were families who had come here for years and years and years, owned homes, bought a Jeep Wagoneer 20 years ago and still drove the same one, um, dressed down. You know, you'd never know, by the way, anybody dressed, what their occupation was. So that that that's what is different now. Although I don't, I don't. I guess I don't. I don't often see things better or worse. Or if I do, I see them that they are better and worse at the same time. I find that um, the people who come here now, who we'd call the wealthy people, have learned to give back to this island. And just think of where our island nonprofits would be if we didn't weren't able to raise the money that we raise through the wealthy summer people here. Yeah, I mean, the island certainly does a good job of that. There's a lot of, uh, all those festivals that take place really do right. give back. So you can't, you know, I don't think you could cast a negative shadow on that. I mean, you can spin it either way you want, which makes me ask you if you think it's changed for the better or for worse. That was one of the questions. What what you thought, in your opinion? Well, I think, I think it's both. And a, a lot of how you experience it is how you choose to, to um, live in this place. I mean, I think if you look at the pattern of the things that I've done, you'll see really what I did was adjusted to the world around me. And if I had started, uh, well, you couldn't have, but if I'd started some, something like Man About Town back in 1970, it'd be like, what? You know, what is this? I get this thing in the mail <laughs> three times a week. And I don't It'd know. be a lot of mailing trips to the <laughs> post office <laughs> if you had to do that. <laughs> so I think uh, it just... If you can change with the times and see the opportunity, then you can survive here. If not, you can't, and it's horrible to see people leave. You know, that's something that's interesting, because I remember when I first got here, she, Audrey Stirk, a friend of mine, said, you know, if you can invent yourself here, you can figure out there's a way to do it, and you're an example of that, clearly. But one of the things that, I, that concerns me, I've only been, I'm new, so I've only been here five years, but I immediately connected to there's a quirkiness to Nantucket other there's a there's a, other creative a lot of creative type people out here artists painters photographers but I think with what's going on with the current situation of housing it's harder and harder for people like myself I, I, I got lucky I met a 
girl and I started a family here and she had a housing, secure housing, but other people like myself aren't going to have that success out here. And it's going to be harder and harder. And what I think is going to happen that worries me is that Nantucket will lose some of that creative energy because it could turn away some really talented, creative people that might be able to make a home out here and live. And that concerns me a little bit. Yeah, and I guess on paper it does me too, but then if if you look at the trends, I'm not seeing that, and, and certainly we all have people that did leave. So I could be wrong. I don't think you're wrong. Uh, it's possible that it's yet to come, but I think that artists have always taken adversity and, and done what they can do with it. I mean, if if we go back... And you're looking at it. Right, <laughs> there you go. But if you go back to the 70s and compare that to now, there's... 10 times more art, 10 times more artists. There's far more art. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know. Yeah. So, and then there is a lot more opportunity for people to do things with uh, social media and certainly photographers. Right. I mean, gosh, I had uh, Jonathan Nimmerfro, the Slurpee Wave guy, on, and we, we talked about the digitalization of photography and how right. that's changed the medium. I'm sure that's affected you. But, uh, well, so let's go, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you evolved out of the painting into the camera shop and then take us into Man About Town, which is an amazing beast <laughs> of, of, of what's going on in Nantucket. Well, the, the, just in the, the bridge between the two, the camera shop I had for 25 years, and what that allowed me to do, because it made enough money for two things. One, that I could go away for several months out of the year and see what's going on in the real world. And secondly, that um, with a good staff, there was a second there. Yeah. I, I just I lost the right. second part. Um, so it, it allowed me to do some traveling and come up with, oh, I know, to start other businesses. Mm -hmm. So And there was enough money there to start a business where there was a risk of losing money and hope that at least half the time I could make some money with it. So one of those things was a nightclub called The Roadhouse, which was from 1970. Uh, someone told me about that. Pete Arsenal told me that you used to manage a roadhouse. Owned it, yeah. You owned it. One of three owners, right. And where was that at? It's where Fairgrounds is now, but okay. you, you, you wouldn't get the atmosphere of what it was like, although the basic structure of the building is the same. But we decided, and how that started was, there's a right, there was a writer living here at the time, and, and until just recently, named Frank Conroy. And he wrote a book kind of compared to A Catcher in the Rye called Stop Time. And it's about growing up, basically. Mm -hmm. Coming of age, kind of. Coming of age, exactly. So um, he was famous in some places. Uh, and here he was just the guy that knocked around. But he also played jazz piano. And um, but he was already on the island when I got here. But I think at one point he got a job at the JC House at the Tap Room, which is closed now, but still there. And um, because he was playing there, some of us would come and eventually that crowd came to grow and grow so that wherever he played a lot of us showed up and it, that meant hippies it meant artists but it was sort of that artistic right crowd. he was the guy that go, hey he's playing let's go yeah so then um this guy rob, um, rob madden who's uh, tim madden a representative to the state it's his, it was his older brother he took over uh, i forget what it was called back then i think the pines and turned it into kind of a kind of a steakhouse and and he offhandedly hired Frank Conroy and said hey do you want to play jazz piano out here and Frank goes sure so he goes out same thing happens the crowd gets bigger and bigger on Friday or Saturday nights whatever it is and one night one of our friends walks in named Torpy 
And Torpy says, he looks around the room and he realizes there's like 50 people there and he knows every single one of them. Mm-hmm. And he goes, champagne for the house. And I tell you the story because it leads somewhere. <laughs> um, so uh, Rob Madden goes around, he gathers up every bottle of champagne he's got any place and we sell them out in about two hours. And so he decides he's going to keep doing that and buying more and more champagne. And we set all kinds of records selling champagne on the island, I think, at that place. So at the end of the summer, we all sat around, we being me, Frank Conroy, and Bill Torpy, the <laughs> right. drinks on the house, said, uh, well, you know, why don't we just buy this thing from him before we make it worth too much money? We'll buy it what it's worth now and tell him you're not going to come back and play piano unless you sell it to us or, or you'll have to sell it to us. And um, he agreed to sell it for a ridiculously low price. Wow. Did it feel, was it kind of a roadhouse vibe? It was definitely a roadhouse vibe. Exactly a roadhouse vibe. And, and the furniture he had in there was perfect for it. Uh, not perfect for much else. But perfect right, perfect for, for a beat up old roadhouse. So we added, there was, a bar, there was that same sort of walk in the middle. And on the right, we put in a tiny little bar that didn't exist there because it was no bar. It's a big bar now. On the left, uh, there was a bar and we kept that. And we decided we were going to have a rule. And it was a very bold rule, which is we would, when you'd come in, we would say, are you here for the music or are you here to socialize? And if people said the music, we'd say, okay, now once you're in there and the music starts playing, you can't talk. And if you talk, we're going to bring you into the other room. So if you want to talk, go into the other room. And people would be very confused, but it worked. We people had, would sit in silence and listen. We had the best jazz audience. A lot of the players that played with us at the Roadhouse ended up in New York City and said, we've never had a house like what was here. And it's true. You go to any any, big pl- any jazz club in New York, you still have people talking. They're not paying 100% attention. Yeah. W- what uh, what kind of stuff is he playing? What kind of... It was straight ahead jazz. Jet, like yeah. bebop or... A little bit of bebop. I mean, it's pretty much classical jazz. Okay. The way you th- when, you, when you first think of jazz. And we... He, is, that, he, is, that, is that what you listen to most? Are you a jazz head? Uh, no, but it's certainly a major portion of it. I, I think I judge by how many... If I look at my... Uh, iTunes, what do I have the most of? And, uh, it's not the most there, but Afri- I think ac- actually African is the most. Is that what you listen to a lot of African well, music? Well, yeah, when I listen. That's, I, see, then that's it. What's on Gene Man's uh, playlist on well, his iPod? I, I'd have to actually, I, I, I don't remember it. It's just I put it on the background. When is I'm it rock, though, or it's African? Some or? rock. Um, a lot of 70s, 80s music. Who's your favorite rock band? Oh, God, I don't know. I don't even know how to. How to I know, that's a tough. Don't get me in that one. All right. I was going to say, you, you strike me as a Beatles guy, but... Um, certainly in the beginning, although my love for the Beatles grew over the years, um, more so now than even back when their music was coming out. Yeah. Seemed kind of childish at first, and then it was like, well, it's a kitschy tune, and all of a sudden, God, it's the best. <laughs> it I, changed it, everything. It really did. I don't think you can get any bigger than the Beatles. I no. mean... So anyway, you were on the Roadhouse. You're having okay. a jazz side and a, a conversation side. Right. So and this is what year? Uh, 70, 78 to 80. 78 to 80. And um, we ended up losing quite a lot of money. But the fact is, it was the best place. Uh, even the people who came before on this, on this island thought that the, the um, Opera House, they called it a nightclub. And they did have a piano player, but it really wasn't exactly a nightclub, although it was classy and it was great. Um, and in fact, I learned and emulated um, from what I saw there. And I said, let's take this, this, and this from there. And there was another place 
called um, The Ship's Inn that was run by John Krebs. And I said, I'll take this, this, and this from there. We'll combine that and see what we get. We got the Roadhouse. And um, it's still anybody who was here in those days, and I'm talking about, I don't know how they got in, but 14 years and up, somehow <laughs> they got in there. It was 18 drinking age back then, but still so many people. Uh, and this is a, a spinoff story. So one day, um, I, and this is many, many years later, I pick up the New York Times. And um, I shouldn't say I pick it up. I get it delivered every day. Or In those days, it used to be in a little box in the back of the hub. And that's actually how I got to know David Halberstam because my newspaper was above him. Oh, okay. And one time I said to him, while we were picking up the newspapers, and we hadn't really met, and I said, not too many people can say they're above David Halberstam. (laughs) (laughs) And then we became friends. But um, So the New York Times one day, the jazz writer was this guy named Peter Watrous. I go, that's funny. There's a Watrous on the island, Livingston Watrous. He works at Mitchell's Bookstore. I wonder if there's any relationship, but I actually never checked on it. So uh, many years later... Uh, this Peter Watrous sneaks in to the roadhouse, unbeknownst to me, never really says anything, and listens to jazz for the first time in his life, and he goes, oh my God, this is incredible. Decides he's going to basically become a jazz writer for the New York Times. <laughs> and, and, becomes and, and becomes a jazz writer for the New York Times. And wow. So he will say, he'll tell that story, if he hadn't snuck into the roadhouse, and I hadn't of term. He may have never been a jazz. He never would have been a jazz. No, he was saying, I never would have been a jazz writer for the New York Times. And he wow. did that for like 10 or 15 years. And um, now he's, I don't know what he's doing. He still owns a house in Sconset. So he still comes out here? Every summer, yep. Wow. In fact, he occasionally does gigs at the uh, Shauna Claire. Which he brings three or four musicians from New York and, and plays for a while. That's cool. I like that they do that, though. Yep. They still keep uh, the music especially out there. I mean, was there ever was there always music out there in Sconset? No, it's been tried. It never really quite works. You know, if you put three or four players in there, it overwhelms the room. The room is so small for that. Mm-hmm. So it's been tough, and I admire anybody who tries to do it. But yeah, I mean, I think I saw uh, You Scream, I Scream played there. That really overwhelmed it, didn't it? It did. <laughs> it was amazing. And I, this that was I had just gotten out here, so I had only been to the Chanticleer. That was my second time being there, and I thought it was odd. But they, for some reason, they played. It was a rock show, but it was cool. I mean, anytime there's live music happening, it's yeah. great. Yeah. So anyway, so the Roadhouse happens and closes. Uh, closes. And, um, and, and then what business do you go into? Well, that's what kind of leads it in. Because, all right, so for 25 years, I have a business on Main Street. And... I feel plugged into the island like like only working and living downtown can do. And so then I um, get the roadhouse, and now I'm the center of the art, the music world, the nightclub world. So I'm, again, totally hooked in. Then when that's over, it's 1980, uh, and I'm still, but I'm still in the camera shop. I didn't sell the camera shop till. Oh, so you were doing the roadhouse and doing the At cam- the same time, right, and doing a frame, a frame gallery. At one point, I had 100 employees. I'm sorry, 50 employees. 100 employees over the qu- course of a year and I'm just going what am I doing I can't do this oh my god so I dropped the frame shop but um, at, after the camera shop closed I had enough money for a year to basically figure out what I wanted to do and actually I said okay I have two ideas one is a jazz festival and that's when I called up Peter Watchers and I said do you want to do it and he said I can I'm still writing for the times but after I'm finished yes and then secondly, I wrote a business plan for a TV station. And it turned out eventually it took a year, or it took 
three months probably of f shopping it around and Tom Scott was one of the people who walked in and said okay I'll, I'll put you over the top and he then a couple of years later decided his ideas were different than mine and the best way to accomplish that was to buy basically buy the entire station from me and my partner at the time okay. and then do what he wanted so basically yeah, I, I, I created it Tom looked at it and said I can do better than that he buys it. Buys it, makes it kind of a national company. Was that the Plum TV? It was Plum TV, right. That was Plum TV. And Plum right. TV was supposed to be a TV network that loosely covered uh, luxury uh, vacation areas, Aspen. Because right. I do remember it when I, I was in Vail, Colorado, and I remember seeing Plum TV out there. Right. Yeah, I mean, his my business model was local advertising, and I soon realized there just wasn't enough money to support it. So Tom looked and said, I want to do this, but I can't just stay with local. So if I'm going to go with national brands, I've got to show them a market that they don't have now, which is luxury. Mm. So Tom didn't head out to, you know, just hang out in luxury places. This the business model only worked that way. It only worked for that. that and I thought it was I thought it was the best chance that it had of succeeding. So I was happy that he, that he did that. So now I find myself totally unplugged from everything because. Once I had the TV station, we used to go around and cover all the nonprofit events, so I'd be invited everywhere. And one night I'm sitting around going, I am, I'm just like everybody else right now. <laughs> I've got to pay. I said, you know, it's going to cost me $50,000 to go to these parties that I was going to all the time and, and being free and getting free into those parties. So I actually thought it out, and I said, how can I get plugged back into the island? And I just went, okay, I take pictures, I write. What can I do? I've got 200 email addresses. Those, those are my friends. I said, well, what if I, I'll start by doing a calendar that tells people what the really interesting things are to do because many of the other calendars listed everything that was going on and that was too thick to get through. Or they listed only the things that their publication, that, that the people advertised in. Or another one listed basically only the nonprofits. If you wanted to go to the movies, there was no place to look it up. It was that simple. It was crazy. You'd have to literally go downtown and see it was on the marquee. Right. Or you could call, of course. But or call. But still, people want to see that in a listing. And, um, and then I realized the same thing about music. Nobody ever knew where the music was. There was no consistent listing. So I said, I'm going to concentrate on those two things. And I sent out the first edition and little notes about, you know, I saw this movie. So they were great. just email blasts. Just an email. The first one was a one-pager. And tiny little text and no pictures and it was just and I would I uh, would end everything that I planned to go to and if you come I'll be there because that's another thing too if you th re realizing there weren't that many you know ten years earlier than this it was hard to there was there was far less music for one thing so how do you find out about it and then who's going to be there especially like think about the first time maybe you went into Nick's and you go I don't know what this place is going to be I don't Right. Who's going to be there when I get there? But if you know somebody's going to be there and then there's 200 people on the list and another dozen of those people show up, all of a sudden it's now a great place to be because you've got friends. Exactly. So that's how it started. And after that first and second one, everybody went, I hope you're going to keep doing this. This is amazing. I went, wow, this could maybe this could be an idea. So I did it for about two years until somebody finally, I'd never thought of advertising. I was still trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. <laughs> And uh, I start getting these requests. Do you sell ads? And I'm like, oh, 
ding, 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 ding. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I can get paid for this. And then it just exploded after that. And so we're at that point early on where people inviting you to the cocktail parties because you, you <laughs> where they're like, oh, well, Gene's got because you're at every cocktail party. That was another question I had. How many cocktail parties do you think you've been to? If you had to ballpark it, is it over twelve hundred? Uh, or five thousand? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, you mean to- in total? Total. Yeah, I was thinking. Uh, that I'm driving here. I'm like, I wonder how many cocktail parties Gene's been to. Well, two years ago, I counted. <laughs> so 2000. 15, 14, 13. I counted 2012 how many events I covered. I didn't break them into cocktail parties, but assuming I probably had a cocktail at every one. <laughs> um, and it was 186 events that I covered over the course of a year. It would seem it would seem like it's more, but it's it's not. Yeah, I mean, but the, now it's to the point you've built it to right. the point where if there's an event and you're there, it's it's an event. You're the guy that makes it an event, Gene. And that's weird. But I see that happen. I can I watch a room get really excited. People start moving around faster, and they start talking a lot louder. It's crazy. It actually happens. Why do you think people love to have their picture taken in those settings? Um, that's a good question. I have no answer to that. I mean, I like it. I like it when somebody takes my picture. I like it when somebody passes me on the street and says, I saw you in the N magazine. Yeah. I don't know. It's vanity, I guess. What else it is. It really and and you know there was a there was a name that I wanted to bring up to you because I from New York I would w- go to a lot of these events and Patrick McMillan was there. McMullen. Now, McMullen. 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 Yeah. Do you know him? No, but I wish. But I did. you're sort of like the Patrick McMullen of Nantucket now because kind of yeah. You become just being there perceived as being the guy that's on the scene. Um, it does seem like that. Um, does it feel like a job? Uh, it fe- it feels like a job. Oh, by the way, just going back to the um, previous one, Bill Cunningham is the person I really admire, who's another New York photographer. Of course, and he goes to social events too. But he comes, you know, he rides his bike there, and um, he never accepts any food or drink, and he's just he's so in love with the art of it, and not the personality of it. But um, he's great in that documentary. Oh. If, if, if for those of you listening, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's Bill Cunningham. Uh, you can it's on Netflix. You yeah. can, it's a fantastic it, documentary. Incredible. It brought me to tears. Of he's, course, I identify with him. But um, have you ever met him? No, but I would if I could figure out how to do that, I would do that. Well, that's the beauty about Nantucket is that there's someone that's listening that's probably connected to Bill Cunningham somehow. We should get him out here. I don't think he, I don't think he ever <laughs> leaves New York. He doesn't leave New York. <laughs> I don't think so. Not, not based on that film. Um, so what did you ask me? I was uh, talking about Patrick McMullen. He was, right, we did that. He was one of the uh, guys oh, that I was know. just I, around. I, rem- I remember when I first had the idea, and I said, okay, so um, now it seems like everybody knows me, but when I started this 10 years ago, Hardly anybody really did. I mean, you know, people who had been around since the 70s did, but the people who ran the nonprofits, uh, maybe I knew the executive director or the president, but I didn't really know the people who worked at the door. So I remember that being my greatest fear, going, you know, I don't want to go up to the door and go, so my name is Gene Mann, and I had this idea. I thought if I <laughs> yeah. if I took some pictures that people would, you know, and I just went, I can't do that. Can't well, that's what that. I was, how did that first part, like, did you just, crash a party that you knew that there was going to be people every party for the first year and you would just show up uninvited i would i would take my camera and i would hold it as high as i could as if i were as big as i could be and i would walk past the people at the count at the at the table at the door registration and they and i would see them go 
they'd be looking at each other like pointing and going, is he, is he supposed to come? Go <laughs> and, and, That's and, great. But I look so authoritative. They go, well, I, I guess so. I, mean, I love he's, it. He's taking pictures. You act like you know what you're doing right. and like you're somebody and they'll right. leave you alone. And they, um, That's great. And within a couple of months, they were like inviting me to the party or so excited that I was coming in. But that first month, was I was so stressed. That's amazing. Now, do you get, do you get inundated with requests for people to come to uh, invited to so many parties that you have to pick and choose which ones you'll attend? How I, do you do? A little at this time of the year, yeah. I mean, number one, uh, I don't take private parties, and I think that's something that Patrick McMullen definitely does. Mm-hmm. And it's um, so everything I do is public. Yes, you have to buy a ticket, perhaps, but it's it's not closed to the public. It's open to the public. And that's a good line to draw because I can't really do any more than that. That's that that in itself keeps me very busy. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- I have a couple of photographers I really count on. I c- count a lot on uh, Lori Richards, on uh, Lisa Fry, and now Mark um, Mark Ranny. And those are my three go-to people when I need photographs. And then you have also you have a staff of writers. If, uh, yeah, although uh, if you're imagining a room that they all sit around in, that doesn't happen. It's uh, th- They're all uh, contributing writers when they have the time, which is not easy to find these days. Yeah, well, that's one thing, especially during the busy season. But you have a you have a staff of people that are helping put Man About Town. Not really. No. Uh, other th- the writers are there, and I might maybe get four or five stories a week from them. Um, everything else you see, with the exception of the calendar, uh, basically I do. The calendar is done by Amanda Morgan, who used to be my assistant here and is now in Vegas becoming a nurse, but she does the calendar. And other than that, it's all kind of on my desk. So it's all, you'll ultimately have the, the, the say of what's gonna right. go on. Right. But the process of picking the pictures at those from those parties, it's I mean, mean, how many different, I mean, you must get so tired of looking at just groups of pictures of people at cocktail parties, <laughs> like looking at five different, you know, oh, how do you decipher which one you pick? Um, well, this one, she's got shrimp in her teeth, so yeah. we can't use that one. That's it. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I usually shoot anywhere from five to ten photographs. Uh, I have a rule, minimum of five, and then um, one picture for each person. So if it's ten people, I'm going to take ten photos. And there'll always be a good one in that. Um, the editing, I, I do, basically, I just have a glass of wine, turn on some music, and go. And I actually find editing is fun, and I'm better at it if there if there is wine and um, music because editing is somewhat musical. It's trying to find a balance in the pictures. Interesting. I, it sounds, it so sounds you, no, but you do sounds take religious. T- but yeah, this no. Is really it's, hey, listen, everyone has a process, <laughs> and if that's the and if you it shows if you take the time to actually look at composition yeah. and. But the other thing you asked me is is it uh, does it ever feel like a job? Yes. And it often feels like a job but that's always when i'm at home that's when i'm uh, it's a lazy sunday and i'd love to not have to go out that night and shoot something that's when it feels like a job but i don't really know why this happens or how i do it the second that i walk in to a party it's to me just like walking on stage and i I go into a character i'm a different character if if you actually and I've just noticed this in the last couple of years, if you recorded everything I said all night long, I would be the worst comedian you've ever heard, but people would laugh. 
because all I'm trying to do is get them happy, relaxed in two seconds because if you wait too long, then panic starts in. Oh, is this something in my teeth or anything like that? Right, interesting. So, so there's I'll just say the stupidest thing. I'll play off them and I'm and s- sometimes I walk away and go, that was one of the stupidest things I ever said and I'm, I'm thankful it didn't offend anybody. That's really interesting because I you don't strike me as someone that would be self-conscious at a cocktail party at all about that. Uh, before I had this, I'd walk into a cocktail party and go to a corner and then hope that people would come over and talk to me. <laughs> that was me. A guy with a camera. <laughs> right. Well, maybe w- w- back in the day, if you'd had your ponytail and your bare feet, they'd be like, who's this guy? I want to talk to this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or not. So what's what's next for uh, Man About Town? The web- Can we talk about the website? Um, yeah, I mean, it's... It's in my head. I'm go- it's going to be designed this fall sometime. And m- mainly it'll be an archive of the newsletter because right now if um, you heard your picture was in my newsletter, unless you can get someone to forward it to you, you, um, you at the moment you can't even find the pictures right away because I decided to hold those back for a couple of weeks. But if you were in a story, there's no way to really find that. So whatever stories are right now, or my writers write, will end up on the newsletter so that you can find all these. And people who may be trying to find out what Man About Town is, again, they're, they're getting what's a, a, a website that looked like it was built 15 years ago. Yeah. Which is just you know a list of events on it's the a left. Little, it's a little archaic. It's archaic. <laughs> it's archaic. I didn't want to say it, but I was going to let you say it. No, I, I know it's the worst thing in the world, but... I also know that uh, if I have limited resources, the newsletter is what I am, and, and that has to come first, so that's what happened. Yeah, well, I mean, you've clearly done it. You've built it into something that is, a, it's, a st- it's a Nantucket staple now. You know, people get Man About Town consistently now, and it's uh, how people find out about events, I think. Yep. And now, in some ways, the pressure's probably more on you now. You're probably more busier, right? I discovered something... Uh, you didn't exactly ask that question, but I thought you were going there. I discovered something um, that I never realized about famous people. And I'm not saying I'm a famous person, but I'm saying that when you get adulation, there's something in the brain, at least in my brain, and I think in other brains, that says, I want more. And if you don't get it, you get insecure. So well, that's, I think what you're talking it's validation. I you're, guess. There's some sort of validation. I mean, any sort of accolade or having someone know who you are or right. that recognition is a sense of validation. Maybe. I maybe. guess it's validation, but it's also huge. It's also ego. But um, I now basically, sometimes I'm in my house for five days straight and don't come out and don't see anybody. And when I go to town that first time and somebody goes, oh, hi, I love your newsletter, I go, oh. Right, there's a world out here. Right, people actually read what I do. It's probably important to know too that you didn't start out that way. You didn't start Man About Town because you wanted people to know who you were. No, it was a way to keep my friends together. That's exactly what it was. It does serve a very important part to the community, though, because it does list everything that's going on on the island, and people look to it every day. That you know, the newsletter is how to find out about what's going on. And there's no question that there are more theater tickets sold. There are more music concert tickets sold. It's it's just common sense, and I'm not saying that it's because I do it that it's happening, but 
if you have a list of it, then people know what's going on and they can go. If you don't have that, people are going to miss things. Yeah. This is, I just thought of a question and it's kind of a side note, but I was wanting to know what you thought of how Nantucket can continue to keep that pursuit of creativeness out here for other artists and other people that are coming here. Like what are some, because the housing issue is such a problem and (coughs) it's just going to, it's going to get harder and harder. And I'm wondering if it's going to dissipate and it's just going to become, there's going to be a tipping point, I guess is what I'm getting at. Right. And are we going to lose it? Do you think? I think it's possible. I, I don't. I don't know how to see. I don't know what the path to that will be. But definitely, affordable housing is the most. It's the biggest problem this island has. Although it's always been the biggest problem this island has. See, had, which so. is an interesting point. So when you got here, housing was an issue too in 1970. No. Um, yeah. Although there was a lot more of it. You sort of had to know. Don't someone. forget the population of the island was 3,500 people back then, and. Um, the number of people who came for the summer to work might be another couple of thousand. So we're probably 10 times bigger on many levels here now. Yeah. I spoke with, uh, on the last podcast, there was a gentleman who'd been coming here (coughs) for 41 years. And he was on the beach, and I just had a conversation with him. And he did say that, he said, oh, I said, do you think things are going to change and things are going to become different. He's like, no, nah, they'll just keep knocking down houses, build new ones. Things will always sort of stay the same out here. So which brings me back to the original point of the conversation. Like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Do you agree or disagree? Um, yeah, although it, you know, things definitely have changed since 1970. Just as I described, the, the summer people then are not the summer people now. That's a change. So it's not the same, but it's still that structure is still there. As wealthy people come in the summer, year-round people don't make as much money and have a hard place finding a place to live. Yeah, that's always been true. Yeah, and as it evolves, I guess you could, some people could argue that it's just always going to be that way, and people will figure out ways to exist out here. Yeah, I mean, if you have limited um, space, which an island is by definition, then different rules apply. You know, it's I, I for that one uh, f- when I used to live in Boulder that one year. I used to spend time in Aspen, and you could kind of see the same model. Aspen was kind of an island, but then you could, but there you could at least drive down the valley to Basalt, which I think was thirty miles, and you could find housing there. And you know, here it's a boat or a plane. Was Boulder, Colorado, the last place you lived off island? Last place full time. Full time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a place off island anywhere? No. For ten years, I had a place in uh, the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So that was from 1980 to 1990, and that was great. And then for a lot of the 90s, I just would pick a different place every winter. So I lived in Hawaii a couple of years, and uh, Key West, Boulder, uh, not Boulder, uh, Washington D.C., a um, couple of other places over the winter. San Francisco. So you'd go spend time there and then yeah. come back exactly. in the summer. Yeah. And here we are in the middle of, uh, what's today, August 3rd? Right. Second, the busiest time of the year. Pretty much. We have a cocktail party to shoot tonight? Uh, no, I'm off. There you go. <laughs> Mondays are good. Oh, man. Well, Gene, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down on Inside You're the welcome. Whale. Thank you for having me. This is great. I really appreciate it. Uh, Gene Mann on Inside the Whale. And thank you for doing this. This is an asset to the island 50 and 100 years from now going to be a very thank important Thank you. Thing. I hope that was one of the, the things that I, when I got here and realized that I'm going to be living here now full time is what can I do and what are my 
you know, I'm not a painter. Right. I'm not a framer. So the podcast, you know, this is episode number 15. You're number wow. 15. And uh, hopefully when I get, we'll be celebrating and you'll be photographing the Inside the Whale 100th uh, episode party. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there. All right. Thanks, Gene, so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Great. That was awesome. Well, there you have it. My conversation with the man about town, Gene Mann. What a great, interesting conversation. And Gene is a guy, you know, he took risks in in doing that, showing up at cocktail parties unannounced, not on the guest list, but crashing parties and turned it into something. And it is true. I think in Nantucket, uh, if you're creative enough, you can find a way to reinvent yourself. Uh, you know, it's about taking risks. Life is about taking risks and doing new things. I couldn't help but think as I listened back to this conversation about my own journey, even with this podcast, you know, this is a risk. I don't know if people didn't know if people were going to be into it, but uh, here I am in 15 episodes and I'm sitting down with the Nantucket legend. So I was really honored that Gene took the time to sit down and tell me his story. And I, I hope that you guys listening found it as uh, enjoyable as I did. He really is a Nantucket icon, and I'm happy to say that uh, he was a guest on my show. Really, truly honored, Gene, that you took the time to sit down with me. Uh, a fledgling uh, Nantucketer, uh, only five years been here trying to do something cool with this podcast, and uh, you recognize that by coming on my show, and I sincerely appreciate that and making that, uh, making that leap and coming with me and joining with me. Uh, there it was, folks. Gene Mann, the man about town. This is Inside the Whale. I am Doug Cody. It is still raining here on Nantucket on this Tuesday, and we need the rain. So I'm going to go out and splash in some puddles, and uh, maybe I'll take a drive out to the ocean and jump in the water again. You should all do the same. It's August, folks. Everyone's a little frazzled. Summer's been wearing on everyone, but it's almost over. The mass exodus is upon us. Everyone will leave the island and the island will take a big breath and it'll uh it'll be fall soon enough that being said rock out go to the beach enjoy these uh last weeks of august folks thanks for tuning in episode 16 is going to be coming up with another nantucket legend billy sherry i can't wait to sit down with him that being said rock and roll folks this is inside the whale and that's my daughter crying so I will end this. I'm Monsters and robots, they would need a special place to sleep.